Okay, so we're finishing up Kings tonight, and uh, it's a bittersweet ending. Um, I, I think it's really interesting how the book of Kings ends. We're going to look tonight at Hezekiah and Josiah, two of the better kings, uh, two high points right at, the, uh, right at the low point, right before the Babylonian captivity. I don't think it's an accident that we have two of the, the best pictures right towards the end when, uh, when exile is all but assured for the people of God. Um, so we ended last week with the northern kingdom being taken away at the hands of Assyria. And so we open up tonight in 2 Kings 18. And we get a description of the reign of Hezekiah. Hezekiah is one of the kings that uh, we know the most about. Other than David and Solomon, um, I think the most is written about Hezekiah. There's three accounts of this, uh, of his reign. One is in uh, Kings, the other is in Chronicles. Chronicles actually has a lot of material. It's not just a copy and paste. It's a lot of material that's not in 2 Kings, um, particularly surrounding the Passover that Hezekiah celebrated. Um, and then also a chunk of Isaiah. Uh, the book of Isaiah. I think it's chapters 36 through 39 retell this story with Sennacherib and um, the, uh, the Assyrian leaders. But Hezekiah, we're, we're going to talk about Hezekiah tonight. We're going to talk about Josiah as the two really good kings. But we're going to talk about how it was too little too late with these guys. Um, the, the kingdom of Judah back in 2 Kings 17, even when it even when northern Israel was being taken into captivity, it says, and southern Judah too was going to experience exile because they had begun to walk in the ways of northern Israel. So all along, we don't get a sense of, hey, maybe Judah is going to make it out. The narrator, the narrator has been priming us for the downfall of Judah uh, for the whole time. So Hezekiah, let's just read in uh, chapter 18. In the third year of Hosea, we talked about Hosea last week. He was the king under whose reign uh, the Assyrian captivity really began in earnest in northern Israel. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right. You kind of brace yourselves... (laughs) When the narrator says that, and he did what was evil. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That one little word uh, makes a world of difference. According to all that David, his father, had done. We're still a few hundred years after David. We're still measuring kings by David. Okay? This is meant to remind us of the covenant. That God made a promise with David. The whole reason that he's been faithful and had mercy this whole time is because of David. Remember that? It's always in remembrance of his covenant with David. It's very important to remember. Anytime you see David, think covenant. Anytime you see Abraham, think covenant. God promised he committed himself to those people. And he stayed faithful to that word that he spoke to those people. This is the story of the covenant people. All right, It was written for the covenant people of God. He removed the high places. Now, those pesky high places were one of the things that even some fairly good kings, they still couldn't quite get. Hezekiah makes a full end of these high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the Asherah, which were uh, kind of monuments to the local pagan deities. And he broke in pieces, now this is interesting, the bronze serpent that Moses had made. What? Haven't heard, you know, that's a random detail. Remember the bronze serpent in the wilderness? That there were, God sent a plague of, of snakes and they were biting people, poisonous snakes, and, and he said, take this bronze serpent and set it up and uh, anyone who looks on it will be healed. Right? It's the same imagery that we get on the side of ambulances, right? Uh, the snake on a pole. But apparently this symbol from God had become idolatrous. Isn't that interesting? Something God had given the people, a symbolic way for them to understand his salvation, 
had become a dead image and even idolatrous at that point and needed to go. This, he's something of, Hezekiah is something of an iconoclast, right? Taking treasured material things and saying, listen, our hope and our trust is not in here. It, it, it was called Nehushtan. And it's, uh, and it's also not a uh, coincidence that it's a snake, right? This, it's a serpent. Um, satanic imagery. Now here's, here's what made Hezekiah good. He trusted in the Lord. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. So Hezekiah was the king who trusted God. For he held, he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went out. He prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and his territory from watchtower to fortified city. He displayed his... Now, so at this time, and you've read the story by, by now, at this time there's all sorts of political alliances that are being made and broken and um, kind of strategic alliances that are happening. Hezekiah says, no, we're not going to depend on anyone. We're going to depend only on God. Okay, and this is something that really pleases God. When his people say, we don't find our security or our strength in anything else. This is what we mean when we say we have faith in God. It doesn't just mean that you believe that God exists. Okay? Faith has, become to, has, has started to mean, when you say I'm a man of faith, it means that I believe in things that some people don't believe in. <laughs> but of what a man of faith is is someone who puts his weight on who God is. He lives as if it better be true what God says. Because if it's not, then my life is going to crumble. Right? Now you can just ask yourself, do you really depend on God? Or do you add God in, but really put your weight on other things? What do you really base your life upon? If it turned out that God, this whole God thing was false, would your life fall apart? Or would you kind of go, oh, okay, well, that was fun while it lasted, and go on your merry way. But he trusted in the Lord. The Lord was with him. Um, so we get this account of the Assyrian leadership, uh, particularly this one guy called the Rabshakeh. I just love that. How, how would you like that to be your title? What do you do over there in Assyria? I'm the Rabshakeh. And I'm here to Rabshakeh. Right? Um, but anyway, he comes and... Hezekiah's story is a story about dependence on God. It says right up front, he trusted in God. Now, Assyria doesn't like the fact that he has rebelled against them, obviously. They're the big dog. They're the superpower at this point. And they say, all right, we're going to go down and whip uh, Israel into shape. They've whipped a lot of other little nations into shape. They're sort of this growing, burgeoning empire. And so it says in uh, verse 13, In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against, took all the fortified cities of, uh, against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, the king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish and said, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. So he wavers a bit. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. That time Hezekiah, at that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from, from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshakeh with a great army from Lachish to king Hezekiah at Jerusalem. 
And they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the washer's field. And when they called for the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, now here's, here's what he goes for in Hezekiah. And this is the challenge of Hezekiah's reign. All right, he said he was, it says he was a, a king who trusted in the Lord. And I think what follows that statement is the way in which he came to trust in the Lord. Okay, so at first he, do, he doesn't really depend. He's, he's playing the allegiances and the political games. And the Rabshakeh says to him, what, on what do you rest? Now listen to how many times the word trust is used. On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Okay, Hezekiah, you're going to shake your fist at a superpower. All right, well, what, so what, what do you have up your sleeve? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff. And now this is partially true. This is a true critique of Hezekiah and actually the people of Israel at this point. There's a whole chapter in Isaiah that pronounces woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. It was a constant temptation for Egypt, for Israel to turn to Egypt for help. And the Assyrians know this and they say, ah, so... You're going to rebel against us. What do you think? Egypt's going to back you up? Well, good luck with that. So, trust in Egypt. You're hosed there. But, but then if you also say, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose highest places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? So he doesn't understand Hezekiah's reforms that he's just done. He goes, so you're rebelling against me, huh? You're going to trust in Egypt? Good luck with that. Oh, maybe you're going to say, oh, we're going to trust in this Yahweh guy. We know who this guy is. Um, well, good luck with that because you just demolished all the worship spots. You just tore all the churches down. What are you doing, man? Then... The Rabshakeh says this, verse 29. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me, come out to me. And what the Rabshakeh is promising the people. We have a war of rhetoric here. He is preaching to the people the gospel. The king of Assyria is here. We are here to deliver you. Come, follow me, and you will each of you. And this is part of some promises that were given to the people of God about the promised land. Each of you will, each one of you of uh, will eat of his own vine and of his fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, which surely did not exist. All right? That you may live and not die. This is straight out of Deuteronomy, the promises of God. Hey, Hezekiah can't do anything for you. You want to live the life that God wants you to live? Come with me. I'm going to take you to the promised land. This is what the Rabshakeh is, the king of Assyria, is saying. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? And this is where, this is where the trust of the Assyrians really is. It's, it's the trust in their own strength. It's the trust in the empire of the world powers. Okay, You could call this the idolatry of empire or political power. Hey, what's religion ever done for a country? What you need is a real leader. You need power. You need muscle. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? 
Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Henan, Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? In other words, he's saying, I've never seen religion be able to stand against Assyria. And he's reducing Yahweh to yet another religion. And that's where he goes wrong. So Isaiah comes in and he, he exhorts Hezekiah. He says, listen, this guy, don't listen to him. You know who I am. Stay strong. Um, and Hezekiah, he receives this letter in chapter 19. And he goes up to the house of the Lord and he spreads the letter before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel. So this is the moment of real trust in Hezekiah's reign. You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Now, every time, every time you hear God is the maker of heaven and earth, you should hear a very strong anti-idolatry uh, declaration. Okay? What he's saying, and what everyone else would hear in that, in that time. So th- there are no atheists in the ancient Near East, right? There's no such thing as an atheist at this point. What Israel goes out and says is not, hey, there is a God. Everybody would say, duh. There's lots of them. And we got Baal over here and the Nashra over here and this is Baal uh, at Peor and all these. Yeah, we know these gods and and, uh, Molech and, and all the other ones. But all of those were tied up within the created order. And they ebbed and flowed with the created order. And to say that God was the maker of heaven and earth was to say that he stands outside of that whole thing. He's not another religion to compare to other religions. You can't compare God. It's not a religious system. And that's what Assyria couldn't understand. So here's what he says. O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms, including you, Assyria, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. The one who makes heaven and earth cannot be lumped together with other things that are of heaven and earth. Right? Earth, but also heaven. The host of heaven. All the spiritual beings. God made all of that too. And so he's not just another spiritual being. He's the one that made the heavens and the earth. Does that make sense? So this is, a, this is a radical statement, and this is what he depends on. This is where his faith is. This is why faith is not just believing that God is. What do you put your faith in? I put my faith in a God who made heavens and earth, the heavens and the earth. And this is all through the Psalms. Every time you see that phrase, you should think, he's not, he's not of this system. He's not another religion. Okay? Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear the words of Sennacherim, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the works of men's hands. So he's saying, yeah, they did tear down lots of other religious systems. I understand why they think that they're as mighty as they are. But guess what they were doing? They were just throwing the wood into the fire because that's all those other gods are, but not you, God. You're not another religion. You're not the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, save us, please, from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. That's a prayer of faith right there. That's a prayer of dependence. Hey, we have nothing, nothing under the sun with which to defend ourselves. So I'm appealing to the one who is above all that, who's not under the sun, who stands outside of all this and who made it and who fashions the nations and before whom the nations are as a drop in the bucket. You, O Lord, let them know who you are. This is like, this is like our little church, all right, compared with the whole 
I don't know, who has a really powerful army? I guess we do, but who other than the United States? The whole Chinese army, right? They're, they're coming marching through. They've, they've, and, and we just say, we're not going to serve you. And the king of China or whoever the, whatever they call him over there, the prime minister or, yeah, he's kind of the king, you know, the Rabshaka. Um, he goes, okay, you and what army? And he says, you're right, you're going to serve us or you're going to die. And we go and we pray to God and say, hey, the God of armies, <laughs> the God of kingdoms, the God who's not bound by many or by few. And, and God sees that as faith because there's no way, there's no way that he can rebel against Assyria and live unless God moves. So do you see how he was a king of faith? He cut off, he cut off all the religious dependents by purging the land of idolatry, and he cut off all the political alliances by rebelling against Assyria, even though he kind of wavered in that, but then Isaiah said, no, yeah, keep doing that. Cutting off, this is why he was a man of faith. He was cutting off every possible source of dependence other than God himself, the living God himself. Even the symbols that the God had given them for a time, for a purpose, don't cling to those. That's yesterday's provision. There's something different that God has for us now. You've made an idol out of that thing way back there. You made an idol out of folklore, out of quaint tradition. This is the living God. And the Rab Shaka does his very best, and his rhetoric is very persuasive. They even tell him, hey, don't talk in Aramaic, because you're going to freak the people out. And he goes, oh, I'm going to talk in Aramaic. Right? He's a populist. He wants, to, he wants the tweet to go viral. And so this is a story. Hezekiah shows us the difference between belief in God, that, there is, that God is a thing, which is what the nation of Assyria affirmed very much. Even so much that they appointed priests to go and serve this God back in chapter 17. Hey, we need some priests to go serve uh, Yahweh, the little god of that little backwater country over there. Yeah, go, go do the thing. There's lions eating people. Go and appease that god. <laughs> they believe in God. James says, you believe that God is one? Well, even the demons believe and tremble. All right, so even the demons here in this story believe that God. So what is the, what is the matter of faith? It's, it's, is he God alone? Is he the only one with actual power? And do we depend on that fully? Or do we also kind of depend on this religious thing over here or this political uh, thing over here? So this prayer is a prayer of faith. Hey, (laughs) we don't have Egypt. We don't have Assyria. We've cut off the idols. We don't even have a place to have church. Because it wasn't pleasing God. We've, we've sacked it all. Now, God, you move. Let's see, the, let's see the, the living God move, the God of heaven and earth. And this prayer is remarkably similar to the prayer that Elijah play, prays at the, sh- the other showdown between religious systems. Right? The Baal who didn't hear, didn't he, uh, answer. And the God who answered by fire. He says, let them know that you are God alone. And that you have turned their hearts back. This is Elijah's prayer, and it's the prayer that gets echoed Hezekiah's prayer. It's a prayer of great faith and great power. All right. So, belief in God versus reliance and dependence. We are a people of faith. Not because we believe that God exists. The demons believe that God exists. But we are a people of faith. People of God are a people of faith. Because we don't depend on anything else. We don't put weight on anything else. We don't trust in anything else. And that's what Hezekiah demonstrated. He's the king who trusted in God. And so Hezekiah is the king who trusted. Josiah is the king who obeyed. It's a cute little...
pair here, trust and obey. There's a song, right? An old gospel song, trust and obey. And these two kings here at the, at the tail end of Judah, but pre-exile, we have the king who trusts and the king who obeys. Josiah, I love, love King Josiah. It was, it was in uh, studying this portion of scripture a while back that we, I decided to name our second child Josiah. So I, I love Josiah as a king. Um, so he comes and he issues some reforms. By the way, sandwiched between trust and obey, unfortunately, is Manasseh, which means forgetfulness. They go into exile because of forgetfulness. Right? And Manasseh is the one that seals the deal. They keep forgetting who God is. God keeps remembering his covenant. God is annoyingly good at remembrance. What happened? Oh, I went, should I go get her again? <laughs> Two in a row. <laughs> God's impo- God remembers to an impo- impossible extent. And Israel forgets to an impossible extent. So that's the unfortunate uh, meat in the sandwich here between Hezekiah and Josiah. But Josiah comes, and the first thing he does is he begins to repair the temple to reestablish worship. And I love the song we sang. This is uh, the days of our servant David, or your servant David rebuilding a temple of praise. In the last days, this is what God is rebuilding. The tent of David. Um, so as they are working on the temple, somebody finds the book of the law and cracks it open. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan, the secretary, and they, can you just imagine, like, pouring over this, and you go, uh, go give this to Shaphan. He needs to read this. And Shaphan, the secretary, comes, came to the king, reported to the king, your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and delivered it into the hand of the workmen. Um, and then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And this is one of the reasons I like it. One of the main reasons I like Josiah is his reaction to hearing the word. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. He went into deep mourning because he must have looked in the book and read and seen the vision that God, seen the promises that God had given, read of the covenants, read the heart of God, for his people and the blessings that he promised to those who would obey and the curses reserved for those who were, who would forget and disobey. And Josiah goes, Whoa, we have fallen under a curse. Great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. And so, well, let me read this. So just like trust just keeps coming up in Hezekiah's story, obedience keeps coming up in Josiah's story. So God basically says, hey, listen, and this is important at this point in the story. He says, hey, listen, I love your heart, man, but I've promised that this people is going into exile. He says, My wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place." Now, if I were Josiah, I would have been like, oh, man. All right. Well, thought it might be worth a try. But God says that to him. And then the king sent and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord and with him, all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing 
all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform, to do it, the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. Josiah, that's great, but this country's going to go into exile. But because I like you, you know, you're not going to see the destruction. And still, he says, we're going to make a covenant. And in my generation, as long as I'm drawing breath, we're going to be doing the will of God. And I don't care what's going to happen at the end of the road. I don't care that this nation is about to go into exile. For me, in my generation... In the time between now and when I'm laid to rest with my fathers, we will obey the words of this book. What a guy. It reminds me of uh, the thing in, in Ten Shekels in a Shirt. This is a guy that got a hold of the worthiness of God. He wasn't interested in obeying as long as those blessings that I'm reading about can come my way. God says, no, you know, you're going into exile. And he says, but the God that I'm reading about is worthy. And so are we going to obey him? Even though all my children are going into exile, we will obey God in this generation, even though, even though we're going into exile. Because he is worthy. And so his heart of obedience was a heart that was captured with the worthiness of God to be obeyed. Right? And we got to get this in our hearts. Obedience is not a matter of conformity to a standard. All right? That's, what, that's where it begins. But biblical obedience is one that acknowledges, it's done in the fear of God. It's done because God is worth obedience. Okay? And this is where we need to get all of our kids. Right? It, it, we have failed if our kids do everything right. But don't think that we are worthy to be obeyed. They don't respect and have honor toward the authorities. All right? Some kids, you know, all right, I've, I've just, I've hammered my kid into obedience. And they're just as full of themselves as any other kid. Right? That's not the point of obedience. The point of obedience is to get the fear of God in us and a heart of obedience that does the will of the Father because he's worthy And not just because we're scared of not doing it. Or not just because good things will happen to us if we do obey. Is that good? Josiah was obeying even in the face of certain disaster because God was worthy to be obeyed. Another thing Josiah does, he restores the Passover, which hadn't been celebrated unless you read Chronicles because Hezekiah does celebrate it. But in Kings, it says it hadn't been celebrated from the time of Joshua. (laughs) The Passover, the annual feast of remembrance. No wonder they're going into exile because of forgetfulness. They haven't kept the feast of remembrance of the God that brought them out of the land of Egypt. They've forsaken the God that brought them out of the land of Egypt. The Passover says we acknowledge that we are only the people of God because of what he has done. And the angel of death, which, by the way, that went out and slew 185 Assyrians and got the Rabshakeh's attention back in Hezekiah's day, the angel of death passed over us because of the blood of the Lamb. And so he celebrates the Passover, and it's great. It says, he sent it out to all from Dan to Beersheba. And that's not just Judah. That's the whole land of Israel. So he's uniting the people. And his heart is to bring the people together around remembrance of this God and his worthiness and to do and to obey his commands. But, okay, so, unfortunately, it just spirals out of control. I mean, Josiah has these big and your heart's just so full and then it's like, you know, a couple pages and just peters out. and, And there they go, Babylon. And exile. So you, you kind of get the sense that it's, it was too little, too late. 
despite Hezekiah, despite Josiah, it's too little too late. These kings were ultimately unable to keep Judah from going into exile. But this is where kings, uh, the book of Kings, brings us to the gospel and primes us for the gospel. All right? I'm going to preach the gospel right now. Can I preach the gospel? Here is the gospel. God is a loving, patient father who deeply desires and loves to walk with his children. But when they sin, when they trust themselves, though he has mercy, he must punish sin in his justice. But he is long-suffering. He does not like to bring judgment. He gives every possibility for his children to come back into his presence. He provides a way. He gives concession after concession. And he is patient and patient and patient. But he cannot wink at sin forever. And there must be judgment. Exile was the right thing for God to do. And it's what the people deserved. It's what Hezekiah deserved. And it's what Josiah deserved. Good kings. But they deserved exile. But this is because God has yet to reveal the final step in his purpose. The prophets know something's up. And all along they've been prophesying exile, yes, but they've also been peering around the corner at what's after exile. And what they see is a glorious thing. And it's what First Peter says, that they were seeking and inquiring, what is this Messiah? What is this person? In, in, in Isaiah, it prophesies this man who's going to come and, and, be, and bear all the sins of Israel and Judah in himself. And he's going to be a perfect man, but he's going to suffer one man, one perfect man on behalf of the sins of the whole people. And so these prophets know that exile can't be how it ends. Because that's not, that's not how God's going to go out. But they also know that exile is what the people need for now. And there was no one who trusted God like Hezekiah. And there was no one who obeyed the word like Josiah. It says before or after. Or so the narrator says. But that's because he wrote before Jesus came. So God indeed was not done. And it was going to be another 400 years, but in the fullness of time, God was going to send forth his son, born of a woman in the lineage of David, lineage of Abraham, and he was going to cap off that covenant by making repentance and the forgiveness of sins possible. The message of the prophets was return, turn back to God. That's what Jesus came to preach. Repent. That's what it means. Turn back to God. Why? Because he can now forgive sins. Why can he forgive sins? Because of Christ, the anointed king, the suffering servant has come. And he has taken on the sins of the people. And in him, God has condemned sin in the flesh so that he can take this covenant to its fulfilled end, Jeremiah prophesies at these times. Isaiah prophesies at these times. The new covenant, where he's going to come and write the word on their heart. And it's going to be a covenant based on not whether you perform my law or not, but whether or not you seek me to forgive your sins. And now I can forgive your sins when you ask me to, because I have punished sin in the flesh. Exile is no longer an inevitability. Exile was always an inevitability. But guess what? Jesus took on exile. He experienced exile from the Father in himself. He experienced death so that he could conquer death. Hezekiah and Josiah were too little too late. But Jesus the Messiah was right on time. And he is more than enough. Is he the king who trusts? He said his food was to do the will of the Father. 
You cannot trust God and depend on God more than that. Obedience and observance of Torah? (laughs) How about it's Torah that speaks of him? (laughs) He is the word made flesh. Skin, bones, walking around, talking. The Bible's not a book in a dusty corner of the, house, of the temple. The Bible's a man with flesh and blood. The Word is a man. And we see now what it means to be a son of God. And so now it is finished. Exile has been exiled. There's no more exile looming for the people of God. Even the ones that forget... Even the ones that sin. This is the covenant that God has kept with us. Isn't this amazing? This is the gospel. You deserve exile. You deserve death. They went into exile. They died because of their sin. But now this salvation has been revealed to all of us through Messiah because of his blood that we can experience the forgiveness of sins And we are given the opportunity to return. Hezekiah and Josiah, they turned, they returned, and still went into exile. The people still went into exile. Now, when we trust and obey, God forgives sins, and we remain in the land. Isn't that good? They didn't have Jesus. Hezekiah was the king who trusted God the most until Jesus. Josiah was the king who obeyed God the most until Jesus. And so repentance and forgiveness of sins is the prophetic word. Return. Stop sinning. God can forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And this is the word that goes out to all Jews, Gentiles. And we are all called to be a part of the kingdom of God with Jesus as king, and it's the kingdom of the Messiah that will never end. Amen? That's the gospel. That's what Kings primes us to hear. So listen to this. Some of the most exciting words of the New Testament. Right here. If you've really been drinking deep of what I just said, and if, if you've really been looking for Christ and Kings, this will be so exciting to you. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashan, and Nashan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, or Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. 
and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And then the next verse says this, and most Bibles put it in like a next section or paragraph. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And it goes on to tell the story of how he was born. But I think that also you can read that the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It's all about the birth of Jesus Christ. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in the way that we've just been reading about in Kings. Isn't that awesome? And close with this. It's from the same part of Luke that we read before communion. He said to them, he said to those, well, the two guys were walking on the road to Emmaus and Jesus, was, Jesus had died and they were bummed out that Jesus died. You know, um, well, the people went into exile. They probably felt sort of like we feel when we finish the book of Kings. Well, <laughs> I thought Josiah was going to be the one to bring it back, but nope. He said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Now our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted in them all the scriptures uh, it, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. <laughs> we went to the, you know, we thought he was going to be the one to deliver Israel and all we have is this tomb now. That's, that's where we are when we read the book of Kings in the way that we're not really supposed to read the book of Kings. We end up concluding, ah, human frailty, man. Yeah, sin really got the best of it. Forgetfulness really brought the people of God down. And all those things are true. But we're foolish if we don't understand that that's what the prophets have been saying the whole time. There's a grave prepared for you, Israel. And God is going to conquer the grave. There's exile prepared for you, Israel, and God is, can even bring you back from exile. And the latter house can be even more glorious than the former house. It's all here. God does his best work. Read the prophets. Read Ezekiel. Read the, where he goes and he prophesies to dry bones. And then they start to come back to life. God is a God of the resurrection. Death is not the end. Exile is not the end. If you get to death and you get to exile, you shouldn't be upset. You shouldn't be sad. You shouldn't be despairing. Why? Because it's where humanity ends, but it's where God does his best work. When there's nothing, God brings forth light. When there's death, God brings forth life. That's who he is. He's not like all the other gods. And so when we get to the end and we get to exile... We should be like these women instead that they said, man, some of these women are out of their minds. They're all happy and they said angels said that he, he came up out of the grave. What in the world? It's serious stuff. We thought he was going to redeem Israel. He did by coming up out of the grave. And so we rejoice in that. Don't set your minds on earthly things. Set your minds on heavenly things. We live in a kingdom that's not of this world. We live in a kingdom that is established on the resurrection life, and it's an indestructible life. 
And that's the kingdom that we live in. And that's the kingdom that will know no end. There's no exile left for the people of God. The kingdom is an everlasting kingdom because God said that to David and because he was faithful to David. Amen? Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. God opened our minds to understand the scriptures, to understand the book of Kings. And said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah should suffer and on the third day arise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins, there we are, Messiah should suffer and then rise. So what? We can come back and we can be forgiven. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. Not in the name of any other king, but in the name of King Jesus, who is the good king. Should be proclaimed, and not just to God's people, not just to Judah, not even just to Judah and Israel. To all nations, it says. Beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay until the city, until they are clothed with power from on high. So there's a little taste of, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we're going to start in a month. We're going to be in Luke and Acts uh, through the end of the year. So there we go. Once again, we come to the grave, just like we came to uh, the edge of the the promised land in the book of Deuteronomy, and we went to a gospel. Now we're coming into the the land of exile, and then we're going to jump ahead into a gospel. So this is awesome. This is a great way to go through Scripture, because it's easy to get bummed out in the Old Testament. Because there's kind of, it's like grave after grave after grave. Exile after exile after exile. Failure after failure after failure. But that's the point. Failure and then resurrection. We serve a, a resurrected king. Amen? All right. Um, I want to say, so the next, for the next four weeks, it's open topic. Um, I don't have a plan yet. And so I want to open it up. If, if there's something that you want to go back and revisit from Samuel and or Kings, um, let me know. Send me an email or just talk to me in person. Or if there's something completely unrelated to that, something that you would like to dig into some more for a week or two, let me know that. So it's sort of like uh, the request line. (laughs) The request line is open. But seriously, we, we wanted these open weeks just because at certain times there are words that we need to hear as a, as a body, uh, for now. And so, um, your feedback is important to that. Hearing each other and uh, sharing your heart with me or your questions with me are important to this process of these, these open months. So feel free to, to put your name in the hat for, or put your topic in the hat for, uh, for consideration. All right? Amen. Let's, uh, let's go and live the life of the kingdom. Amen.